You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. I'm so excited to preach the gospel to you this morning. Anyone else excited for that? We're in a teaching series called Simple Gospel, and uh, I want to start out today with something fun. At least I think it's fun. I like to think of myself as a fun guy. And uh, we're going to do a simple word association game. I want to show you a series of icons, a series of logos, and I don't want you to say the name of the brand. I want you to say the first thing that you associate with that brand or with that picture that comes to mind, okay? Let's go ahead, and you can say it out loud. This is audience participation encouraged. Let's show you the first one. What do you you think of? Burgers, burgers, fries. Anyone say milkshakes? Not really, no. Uh, Burgers, when you see the golden arch, you think burgers. All right, next one. What do you think of? Coffee, Coffee. someone says, does anyone say like, Mispronouncing your name, is that like you're just scarred from that? When you, when you see Starbucks, you think coffee. Let me show you this next one. Computers. Some, sometimes you might think of watches, phones maybe, right? And then uh, let's go to number four. What do you think of? Shoes. Okay. Basketball or any other sport. Yeah. Okay. Sports, sporting goods. Last one, say the first thing that comes to your mind. Jesus, Jesus. okay. That's great. That was fun. Do you have fun? A little game? Okay. Went through that exercise to just illustrate this point. How did the cross end up as our logo? Do you ever think about that? Because if you were to show that picture of a cross to someone living in the early first century, they would not have said Jesus, and they would not have had a good feeling when they saw the icon of a cross. The one word that you would have heard is death. The cross is not, you know, now it's this universally recognizable symbol of Christianity, symbol of Christ, symbol of Christian, symbol of Jesus. In fact, I would argue that that icon is more universally recognized than any of those major brands that we just looked at across the world. People have that icon tattooed on their bodies, worn as jewelry. It's on t-shirts. It's on buildings around the world. And yet in the first century, if you were to show someone a picture of the cross, they would be horrified with the thought of how extreme and, and bloody it was. It was an instrument of death invented by the Romans. It's an ancient equivalent to the modern day icons of a lethal injection or an electric chair, or, or think of this one, a noose. Imagine if that was our logo. Do you see how intense this actually is? We can kind of take it for granted because we're so familiar and we dress up the cross to make it beautiful. And yet, today, we just really need to wrestle with this idea. Why are Christians so fixated on death? We just sang a whole song about Jesus' death. What is it about the death 
of Christ that is so important and intrinsic to the gospel? It's a very important question. What is the gospel? That's the question we're answering today. It's a great day for you if you are new to church, not just new to our church, but new to faith, new to uh, maybe you're seeking and asking questions about who God is. My goal today is to make the gospel as crystal clear as possible to you. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion. Literally translated, it means good news. Now, in our social media age, we have seriously lowered the bar for what constitutes good news, haven't we? Guy Fieri was in Boise a few weeks ago. Anyone see that? Yeah. He visited, he visited one of uh, my favorite local restaurants, Tango's Empanadas. And it's just like, you know, if you're on Facebook and you see Guy Fieri at one of your restaurants and everyone's like, that is good news. <laughs> I think about social media and how easy it is to share. Like, I made pancakes this morning. Good news. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, we, we, it's really lowered the bar, but this... This Greek word euangelion is not just like fun news or interesting news or Guy Fieri came to town kind of news. This kind of news is, is big. It's the kind of news that you would send a messenger all throughout the land to rush to different cities. The war is over or a new king has been born. That's what this word is all wrapped up into. And when we talk about the good news of the gospel, what we're talking about is this. Here's my simple definition. Maybe it's an oversimplification of the good news, but it's the good news that Jesus is the savior of the world. That's what we mean as Christians when we talk about the gospel. We're talking about the good news that Jesus is the savior of the world. Now in your Bibles, there are four gospels. There are four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I would encourage you, if you've never read the, the Gospels in the New Testament, that's the first place to start. And those are really biographies about Jesus, told from different vantage points of the life of Christ. But when we talk about the Gospel, we're not talking about one of those Bible books. We're just talking about the message, the message that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And as we will see today, the cross plays an immovable role in the gospel. Our teaching text is Matthew chapter 16. If you were here last week, we're actually continuing through Matthew 16. This is Jesus having a discussion with his closest followers about who he is and what he came to this world to do. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, everyone say must. He must, it's not optional. It's not if he has some free time, he'll do it. This is not extracurricular activity. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is one Bible verse that, that I'm gonna spend probably 80 or 90% of my time just breaking down this one Bible verse. That's how the gospel is, by the way. You never learn it and move past it. You can only go deeper in your understanding of the gospel. And in this passage, this is the first of three death predictions that Jesus makes clearly to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. 
the first of three. And it says at the very beginning of verse 21, from that time on, well, I want to remind you what happened in the very moments leading up to this, is that Peter has just made that confession. And the disciples finally have a clear picture of who Jesus is. Here's the point for you and me. You'll never grasp the gospel until you recognize Christ. You'll never fully be able to understand what the gospel is all about. You won't understand none of what I say today will make sense if Jesus is just an average, ordinary guy, which is why I'm just gonna say to you, if today's your first time, if you're, this is week two of the teaching series, and I, would hi- I don't do this every single time because not every sermon necessarily goes one right after another, but today very much depends on our discussion last week on who Jesus is. And so you can always catch our, our previous teachings on our website, hillcityboise.org teaching. We have a YouTube channel, you can watch it. We have podcasts, you can listen to it, but it's not gonna make sense. The events of the gospel do not make sense if Jesus is not who he said he was. So who is Jesus? Well, here's the confession, just a short recap. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And there's a lot wrapped up in that one sentence, but that's the confession that Peter makes. You know, he's, he's more than a man, he's more than a religious leader, he's more than a prophet. And so the shift last week we had to make was viewing Jesus as just another one of the prophets to Christ. He's not just a prophet, he's the Christ. He is the one that the prophets were prophesying about. They were leading up to him. And, uh, and so Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of the living God. Peter makes that confession and then there's this, this line, from that moment on, Jesus waits to reveal the events of the gospel to his closest followers until they first grasp who he is. You see that? And so that's why that's really the starting place for us in understanding the gospel is the person of who Jesus Christ is. And then Jesus goes on to say there is four things, if you're taking notes, go ahead and write a list, one to four, four things that he must do. These are necessary components to the work of Jesus. The first one is he must go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is inarguably the most theologically significant city on planet Earth. Numerous religions are fighting over Jerusalem and who gets what territory and who gets what square footage. It's more significant than New York City, LA, Washington, DC. We like to think we're pretty significant here in the United States of America, but Jerusalem is the most theologically significant city in the world. One of the things that makes Jerusalem significant and why Jesus must go there is not only to fulfill the prophecies about him in Jerusalem, but one of those prophecies has to do with the kingdom of David. We looked at last week, there's hundreds of messianic prophecies pointing towards the work that the Messiah would do to save the world from our sins. And the more clear those prophecies get throughout the story of scripture, throughout Old Testament history, we start to learn more things about who this Messiah would be. And one of those significant prophecies came to King David. King David, the second king of the kingdom of Israel, and he wanted to build a palace uh, for himself, and then after his palace was completed, he wanted to build the temple for God. And he goes to the prophet Nathan, and he asks him, would you inquire of the Lord if this is a thing that I should do? And at first, Nathan says, you should totally do it before inquiring of God. And then God actually goes to Nathan and says, hey, whoa, whoa, hold the phone. 
I didn't say that, you just spoke for me. I have a different prophecy for David. So this is a conversation between Nathan the prophet and David from 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, messianic prophecy. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's, that's a way of saying when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So at first it's like, okay, is this his son Solomon? Who is this going to be? And then it says this, and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who is this person from the lineage of David that would establish a kingdom. And by the way, David is in Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. That's where the palace was. Who, who is it that would establish this kingdom starting in Jerusalem and going out from there? Well, Solomon did end up building the temple. But if you know your Old Testament history, you'll recognize that the kingdom of Israel did not last forever. It lasted one more generation until it was fractured into two halves, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and both of those kingdoms would eventually be exiled under different world superpowers, the Assyrians in the north and then the Babylonians in the south. And essentially, the kingdom of Israel has never regained power since to its former glory. So is this a failed prophecy or is this a different kind of kingdom? And as we'll see, Jesus understood this as a different kind of kingdom, that he was going to Jerusalem to set up. So what does it mean for Jesus to go to Jerusalem? It means he's going to set up his kingdom. The second thing that Jesus must do is he must suffer many things. In the third prediction of his death, this is Matthew 20, verse 19, we get a little more specificity. Jesus says he will be mocked, flogged, and crucified. So it's not an ambiguous, I'm not sure what they're gonna do, I'm not sure how I'm going to die. Jesus knew full well with clarity, mocked, flogged, and crucified. He knew what was coming for him. Now what's interesting is the disciples and many, the, the popular opinion of, of the Messiah is that he would go and set up a political nation a political kingdom. And so, you know, the, the kind of savior that people were waiting for, that the Jews were waiting for, would go into Jerusalem or maybe even go into Rome and make the Romans suffer. Do you see that? It's time for them to suffer. They're the, they're the ones who have been oppressing us. They're the ones, they're treating us like second-class citizens. We're, we're little better than slaves in the eyes of the Roman emperor. And so Jesus says, no, I'm going to set up my kingdom. I'm going to Jerusalem to set up my kingdom, but I'm not gonna make them suffer. I myself am going to suffer. We start to see this is a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of savior. Now he's talking, of course, about physical suffering, mocked, flogged, and crucified, just how brutal and bloody. I mean, you can watch the Passion of the Christ on video and see this recreation of, of just how difficult. It's I mean, that's why it's, that movie is rated R, right? Because it's just, it's difficult to watch and imagine just the physical suffering. And yet, there are other martyrs throughout history who have gone to gruesome and bloody deaths with, with courage, right? With, with just resolve and almost stone-faced going to their death in the face of lions and fires in the face of all kinds of brutal martyrdom. And yet you see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood. Is he less courageous than all of those martyrs? 
Is it, is it merely the physical suffering that Jesus himself is scared or worried about? And we have to recognize at this point when Jesus says he's gonna suffer many things, he's not only talking about the physical suffering of the nails through his hands, the crown of thorns, the ridicule, the beating, the flogging. Not, yes, that is an intense suffering. But he's also, I believe, talking about the spiritual suffering that he would experience in taking the sins of the world in his body and experiencing, remember, this doesn't make sense if he's just a man. This is the son of the living God, second person of the Trinity in perfect union with, 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 with his father. Sin separates us from God. It's one of the things that sin does. And Jesus, having never sinned, has never had to be separated from his father. And yet read this from 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus is, something's happening. There's this transaction taking place where Jesus is taking on the sins of the world, not by committing those sins himself, but by taking them in his body. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once, for what? For sins. What was he suffering for? The sins. It was actually the sin, our sins that he's taking in himself. In 1 Peter 2, it says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's the, bore, that means carried. It's the same word we use for a woman who's pregnant. She's carrying a child within her body. Jesus is doing that so that uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So there's a purpose in his suffering and all of a sudden it begins to make sense that Jesus in taking our sins in his body on the cross, there's those three hours of darkness. What's he experiencing there? Why, why does he cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? For the first moment, he's actually not just experiencing this physical death in our place, but I believe spiritually he's facing the wrath of God that we deserve for our sinfulness. Three hours of darkness where he's just suffering the punishment that we deserve. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crying out those words, sin, separation, darkness. And Jesus says, that's one of the things I must do. I must do. I think that's the drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. That's the anguish and the deeply sorrow to the point of death that he's experiencing. It's not because Jesus isn't as bold as other martyrs who died physical deaths, but Jesus knows if there's any other way. That's almost like an unbiblical prayer. Here he says, I must do that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, must I? Must I? Is there any other way? I must. The third thing that Jesus must do is he says, I must be killed. I must be killed. I must die. The temple in Jerusalem is not only this, uh, this significant theological place of the kingdom, it's also a place of sacrifice. Think of the literal millions of animals that have been sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem. It was a central part of Jewish worship. If, you know, when we think of worship, we think of singing. When the Israelites thought of worship, they thought of sacrificing according to the Old Testament law, and specifically the Day of Atonement, the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. Leviticus 16, verse 30, speaks to the Day of Atonement. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean before the Lord from all 
your sins. The high priest would go once a year into the Holy of Holies and he would make this sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the altar and he would come back out and that would be the way in which the sins of the nation would be atoned for for another year. And in Jesus, this is the reason why he must go to Jerusalem to die. You see, there would not be a doubt in anyone's mind. If you participated in the Old Testament sacrificial system, you brought your own sheep and you sacrificed it. You had to do the work. You had blood on your hands. There was not a doubt in anyone's mind theologically that sin equals death. Very crystal clear in the Israelite worship practice. Sin equals death. And this is clear, by the way, from the very beginning in Genesis chapter three. God warns Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest you, lest you die. The very first thing we know about sin is sin equals death. And yet we have this kind of modern reframing of morality that sin not only doesn't equal death in kind of the cultural context, but is there even such a thing as sin? Right? You see how we've kind of reframed it. We don't like talking about it. We don't, we don't want to wrestle with guilt and shame and judgment and wrath. And yet we will never really understand and be, be able to receive the good news of the gospel until we wrestle with what Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's me. That's you. That's everyone in this room. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This is why Christ had to die. Before the good news of salvation, we must come to terms with the bad news of sin and what it does to the human heart, what it does to our relationships, what it does to our very souls. That's why Jesus says, I must be killed. Because he actually is a fulfillment of what all of those other sacrifices were pointing towards and teaching the nation about. Look at how the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 12 says it. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The good news of the gospel is not kill another animal. The good news of the gospel is not try harder. The good news of the gospel is not be better. The good news of the gospel is grace, amen? It's Christ crucified. The son of God, by the way, it doesn't make sense even if Jesus is just a really good guy or even somehow a perfect human who, who himself avoided sin his entire life because what's the ratio? One perfect person taking the place of how many imperfect people? Of one, it's a one-to-one -one trade. He has to be the Christ, the son of the living God to be able to take in himself by the power of God, taking in himself the sins, past, present, future of every single human being on planet earth. That is how he is the once and for all sacrifice for all time. He must be killed. And then the fourth thing that Jesus says he must do is he must be raised. Let's not forget number four when we preach the gospel. It's not all death, it's not all suffering. We have to remember that Christ Jesus conquered the grave. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, so as we not forget the significance of the resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And he goes on a few verses later in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are, in your, you are still in your sins. We cannot forget the resurrection 
Basically, what, what the apostle Paul is saying, he's like, if Christ isn't raised, we should all just go home. What's the point, right? There's more to it. Now, the resurrection is also proof for us that Jesus' claims are true. He actually is the Christ, the son of the living God. He actually has the power to forgive sins. It's proof, right? If someone predicts their own death, burial, and resurrection, and then they pull it off, no one's outside of the tomb doing the miracle. Do you see that? There's other people who've been raised. Jesus raised Lazarus in John 11. Why isn't there a gospel of Lazarus? Because that was a miracle. It was good news for who? Just for Lazarus. We need good news for all of us. This is more than proof. No one's standing there commanding Jesus to come out from the grave. This is the power of God, the pure, raw power of God, which raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He raised, he rose from the dead. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, this is not only proof, this is victory. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is risen from the dead. And we now share in that victory when we put our faith in him. We have victory over sin, death, and the devil. We're not just forgiven from sins. It's one of the main things we learn through the death of Christ. The punishment has been paid, but we're free from the power of sin. You don't have to give in to that same sin and temptation time and time and time again. Christ is risen from the dead. It's a victory. You don't have to, you have a hope that surpasses even this present life, come what may. Even if you die, Jesus said in John 11, those who believe in him shall live. Christ is risen, that's victory from the dead. The devil, you don't have to even be scared of the devil himself, the enemy himself. All you must do is resist the enemy and he will flee, flee from you. Is that because you're very intimidating to the enemy? Christ is risen, that's power over the enemy. Do you see this? We cannot forget the fourth thing that Jesus must do. He must rise. And that means victory for you and I in our lives. That's just scratching the surface. That's one Bible verse, by the way. Let's continue through our text. We've got time for a couple more. Matthew chapter 16, verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Oh, how the tides have turned. Peter doesn't understand the theological significance of everything we just talked about. He's not thinking about the victory of the resurrection. He may have not even really heard the resurrection part, by the way because he's so caught with the suffering and the dying part, you know? He's like, yeah, yeah, the resurrection, that's great, but suffer many things, die. And so Peter, he's not thinking of, of all of the necessity of the cross. He's thinking about his beloved friend and teacher. I don't wanna see you die. I don't wanna see you suffer many things. And so Peter makes the very foolish mistake of rebuking the son of God. And we look at Peter here and we, we judge him a little bit in our kind of like chronological superiority complex that we have. Looking back, oh, I would never try to do that. Really? How much, how much of the time do we try to assert our will onto God? Try to correct God? Try to take away the suffering? 
Here's the point, you cannot separate Christ from the cross. You cannot separate Christ from the cross. This is why the cross is, it's our logo. It's not a fish, it's not a dove, it's not a shamrock, it's a cross. You, it's inseparable from what the kind of Christ that Jesus is. He's not this political Christ. He's not this marching to Jerusalem, make the bad guys suffer kind of Christ. He's the kind of Christ who says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The very people who are nailing him and sentencing him to death. And so in this moment, Peter rebukes Jesus and he goes from Peter the rock moments ago to Peter the stumbling block. He goes from Peter, your heavenly father revealed this to you to now get behind me, Satan. You're being, not that he's possessed by Satan in this moment, but he's being more influenced by the enemy than he is influenced by the father. We have to be very careful. We, it, it's not automatic. We must still resist the enemy and he will flee from us, by the way. We must still set our minds on things above because what Peter is really tempting Jesus with is very similar to the temptation that the devil tempted Jesus with in Matthew chapter four. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Do you remember that? After the baptism, Jesus went out into the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil with three temptations. Here's one of the temptations. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. What is the temptation? You can have the kingdom without the cross. You can be the king without the cross. Just fall down and worship the devil. Beware of any false gospel which minimizes our sin. You're not that bad. And circumvents that goes around the cross. And I see it. I see it all the time in our kind of moral relativistic culture that we live in. It's not popular, it's not fun to tell people you're by nature children of wrath. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's, it's very popular nowadays to, to take different things that the Bible clearly calls out as sin and say, well, actually it's not that bad. We've actually progressed beyond that and now it's culturally acceptable and now we can participate in, in those kind of things. Beware of any gospel because those kinds of gospels you don't really need Jesus that much. You're pretty good on your own. It's just kind of like a great addition to your life. Or we'll talk about the resurrection, we'll talk about the victory, but we don't wanna talk about the substitutionary atonement. We don't wanna talk about the wrath. We don't wanna talk about the cross. Maybe the cross is nice if you dress it up enough, but we don't wanna see the old rugged cross. We don't wanna see the cross dripping with the blood of Jesus. Because any gospel that does not include the cross of Christ according to Jesus, is demonic. It's demonic. Get behind me, Satan, he says. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Paul writes to the church, for the word of the cross, which is a shorthand, by the way, he's referencing the gospel. How did, what does he call the gospel? The word of the cross. Is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. This is why the, this is why the cross is our symbol it's the very power of God to save us. A few verses later in 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul would say that the gospel that we preach, here's his summary, Christ crucified. 
He doesn't even summarize the gospel as Christ risen. He, he says, if you wanna know what the gospel is, it's Christ crucified. Later in chapter 11, as we looked at with the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper, what do we proclaim? Until Jesus comes back, we proclaim his, his death until he comes again. There is no life for us without the death of Christ. That's why you cannot separate the two. You can't just, have, you can't just make Jesus into a Christ of your own imagination. You can't erase the difficult parts. We need a crucified savior to carry our sins, to die for us and to be raised back to life. And so we take the Lord's Supper whenever we gather. We sing about the cross. We remember not just our past sins, we even remember this past week, the ways that we're still stumbling and broken and we need him to save us fresh. We need a fresh dose of God's grace. But the beautiful thing about the cross is not only does it, is it a crystal clear mirror that shows us our own fallenness, our own brokenness, it's also a magnifying glass that shows us the love of God. Here's the point, when we look at the cross, we see love. That's why it's folly to those who are perishing, right? To someone who's never experienced the grace of God, why are those Christians always talking about the death of Jesus? Why are they eating a meal which, like it's a weird meal, the Lord's Supper. Eat my body, drink my blood, Sounds a little cannibalistic to me, right? It's weird, like, why are we so fixated on this? Because when we look at the cross, having been saved by grace through faith, what do we see? We see love. We see the love of God poured out for us. John Stott says it great in his book on the cross. The cross of Christ is the name of the book. If we are looking for a definition of love, we should not look in a dictionary, but at Calvary. Look at the cross if you wanna see how much God loves you. See, when we look at the cross, we see just how broken, how in need of a savior we are. That's why it's important for us to see it. But it also what we see is we see just how extravagant the love of God is. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The son did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's his purpose. His purpose is not to keep us, keep, keep us feeling bad and keep us feeling guilty. His purpose is actually to raise us up into a new life, to save us, to share in that victory. 1 John 4.10 says it so well. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is just a way of referring to, to a sacrificial gift. A, a sacrificial death that Jesus died for us. Do you know how much God loves you? If you're here today and you've never received the gospel by faith, by putting your faith in Jesus, do you realize you can be saved today? Past, present, and future, you can be saved. See, the word salvation is used in those three tenses throughout the New Testament. In one sense, we are saved because of what Jesus has done. You don't have to pay for your own sins. You don't have, you, you don't have to be punished for your own sins. We, we call that past tense of salvation justified. Everyone say justified. You can be justified today. Your past can be rewritten. It can be, it can be cleansed. It can be gone from, from being re dripping red to made white as snow. 
But then there's a present tense. We are still being saved in some ways. We're still, I like to say we're works in progress and God's not giving up on you. That's called sanctified. Can you say sanctified? The Holy Spirit, when you put your faith in Jesus, comes and lives within you and sanctifies you, transforming you daily by the renewing of your mind that you might present yourself to God as an act of worship. And then there's a future sense where Jesus is coming back and we one day will be ultimately freed from sin and this world will be ultimately freed from the curse of death, from illness, from, from all of the bad stuff that's a result of rebellion against God. That's called glorified. Can you say glorified? Glorified, glorified means one day we will be saved in, a, in the fullest sense. Everything will be made new. And I just wanna present that to you today as the good news. This is, this is bigger than Guy Fieri coming to Boise, okay? This is bigger than I had a Diet Pepsi yesterday with lunch. Like, okay, we get it. This is going to all the earth. Everyone has to hear about this good news. Every single human being, don't rest until they hear it. Good news. This is worth giving your life to sharing with others good news. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel. Jesus is the savior of the world. And if you have never received the gospel by faith, I just wanna invite you to respond. Receive Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Believe in who he is, believe in what he's done, and then commit to following him with your life. I love how Jesus says it in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, can you just say that word, whoever? That's you. That's you and me, dead in our trespasses and sins. No matter how badly you've messed up, no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how far you've been from God, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment. Jesus took that judgment on the cross. That's what he's doing. He's taking the judgment we deserved, but has passed, I love this, from death to life. That's the gospel, death to life. Because of what Jesus has done, he died, he rose again. You can actually leave that old self in the grave. You can die to the old self and you can be raised up into a new life in Christ. So today, would you receive the gospel? And would you, would you respond by getting baptized? Baptism is a death to life ceremony. That's what it is. You go under the water, dunked under the water, you're dying to the old life. You're dying to sin. You're raised back up. You're raised up to walk in the newness of life and follow Jesus. We've got a list of a handful of people who are already signed up to get baptized, just waiting to get scheduled. And I just wanna invite you to join the list, get in line. We'd love to celebrate with you as you declare your faith in Jesus the way that he instructed to us through baptism. For those of you who are already followers of Jesus, here's what I wanna encourage and challenge you with today. If you're just like, yes and amen, that's the gospel, and today's pumping you up, here's, here's what I would say to you. Become fluent in the gospel. The gospel is not something that I should preach because I'm a paid pastor the gospel is our news. This is our message. We shouldn't actually have to wait until someone gets an invitation to church before they hear the gospel. Although I love it when you invite people to church. I love it. I hope that every single Sunday that someone walks through those doors, they better hear the gospel. As long as I'm a pastor, that's gonna happen here, okay? But the gospel is something that Jesus said has to go out. 
It has to go out. Yes, like it's gotta be loud and clear here in this room, but it's gotta be loud and clear in your workplace. It's gotta be loud and clear on your neighborhood. See, if we want the gospel to saturate our world, first it has to saturate our hearts, which means we've gotta, we've gotta become fluent in the gospel. There's a great resource on this called Gospel Fluency. It's by a pastor in Washington called Jeff, uh, his name is Jeff Vanderstelt, and this is what he says. Gospel fluent people think, feel, and perceive everything in light of what has been accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what we talk about with our kids. When we get up, when we lie down, when we walk along the way, this is the message we live in. We just know the gospel. I love that language of gospel fluency because we, it's like learning a language. It's like learning a language and there's no better way to learn a language than to be in a community of people who all speak that language. And I pray that our church would be a gospel fluent church. We know the gospel, we speak gospel truths. Everything we think, feel, and perceive is in light of what Jesus has done for us, the person and the work of Jesus. So would we do that? Would we normalize talking about the good news? Would we become gospel fluent people? Let me close by just reminding us that Peter, he just got roasted, as we would say, okay? By Jesus, get behind me, Satan. That's as serious as you can get. And yet let's not forget that Peter grew in his understanding, not just of who Jesus was, but the work that he must accomplish. And he wrote some of the most profound gospel truths in his letters to the churches in, in First and Second Peter. And I just wanna to read to you the closing verse from Second Peter, that Peter himself grew in the knowledge of Jesus. But this is what he says to us. Hear these as, as words to the church today. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I wanna read that to you again. This is Peter, always saying the wrong thing, always doing the wrong thing. Here's, he had to learn throughout his life. You never move on past the gospel, do you? You can only go deeper in your understanding, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity, amen. Let's stand and worship our resurrected Savior. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.